this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm anand krishnan your host for today in this episode we are looking at the dramatic events in afghanistan the fall of kabul and the rapid taliban takeover have plunged the country into uncertainty how did kabul fall so rapidly and what does this dramatic change in afghanistan's landscape mean for india we are joined by swasni haider who's a hindu's national editor and diplomatic affairs editor and stanley johnny who's a hindu's foreign editor thank you both for joining me today thank you anand thanks anand So Asni if I can come to you first on today August 17th Tuesday uh, you've been reporting uh, on India's efforts first of all to bring home Indian nationals which obviously is a pressing priority for India at the moment so what exactly is the situation right now uh, regarding India's diplomatic presence in Afghanistan as well as what do we know about Indian nationals who are still there on the ground Well what we do know is that uh, the embassy which had 192 personnel uh, including a huge security contingent is now back in Delhi safe uh, and and there were some moments of tension and uncertainty because one plane or a, a certain part of the convoy that was heading out uh, of Kabul to the airport was able to go but then the rest of the convoy the large chunk of it was stopped on Monday by uh, Taliban guards who confiscated some equipment for them from them and then told them they could go no further they had to go back to the embassy um so they were able eventually to get out the indian uh, military operated two indian air force c17 globemasters to bring them out from there but the the task of bringing all the indians who are uh, in, uh, stuck inside afghanistan is not over there are still some indian nationals left there and the ministry of external affairs is um, uh, running hotlines for them in order to try and bring them back once commercial planes uh, commercial flights are flying uh, with the kabul airport uh, and then there is the larger question about afghans uh, you know the government has said it will stand by its afghan partners and opened the lines for afghans who are applying uh, for visas to come to india and uh, those will also have to be facilitated over the next few months but when it comes to the question of what is the status of india's diplomatic presence in afghanistan today what we can say is all diplomats are out all indian personnel are out but that the embassies and the four missions the four consulates that india has in uh, afghanistan still remain uh, they may not be open at present but i think a small chink in the door has been left for um uh for india to reclaim those uh, consulates if the situation in afghanistan does settle down and there is a regime in place that india is prepared to engage with is prepared to uh do uh, have a diplomatic relationship with aswasni it seems that uh two days now after this dramatic uh, fall of kabul that the only open mission seem to be china's russia's and pakistan's what do you think would have been india's calculus in taking the call to fly out uh, most of most of the people working there well of course many missions working in afghanistan had closed in in the preceding months australia for example closed their mission 
in uh, in Kabul uh, pulled out their troops in in May this year. Uh, now, as far as the others go, the US and the UK haven't technically shut down their missions in Kabul because they are still facilitating flights out of there. Their missions have been relocated to the US-controlled uh, um, NATO uh, NATO command um, airport, which is uh, the Hamid Karzai International Airport outside Kabul. So this is uh, uh, this uh, this is still a work in progress. You pointed out that the Chinese, the Pakistanis, and the uh, Russian missions remain open in Kabul. Uh, um, and they have actually already made noises. Pakistan certainly had uh, has is expected to recognize the new regime. Um, uh, China and uh, Russia have made certain noises. Uh, 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 and uh, we are also hearing from other countries, like Turkey, who has called the Taliban statements thus far positive. Uh, Iran, which has said that the defeat of the U.S., in Afghanistan will pave the way for peace. Uh, so we are hearing from some that seem to want to engage fairly quickly with the new regime. There are those who will wait it out. And I think that's what India is trying to do. The first thing Anant people don't realize is there isn't yet actually a new regime in place. The transfer of power hasn't happened. Um, the leadership of the Taliban that remains in Doha has not yet been able to travel to Kabul. Uh, Deputy leader Baradar was expected in Kabul yesterday, was expected today. He wasn't able to go. The coordinating council of Afghan elders, if you like, the previous uh, uh, regime's leadership that has remained, which is Hamid Karzai, the former president, uh, uh, the National Reconciliation Chief, which is um, Abdullah Abdullah, as well as the Hizb Islami's uh, chief, Gulbuddin Hikmatia, this three-member council was supposed to go to Doha for talks. They have put off their visit. So there is a lot of uh, uh, discussions going on about the next regime. That regime is not yet in place. Well, before we come to the strategic choices that India faces with Afghanistan, uh, we've linked below to this podcast, Suhasne's uh, excellent piece on the five questions India faces. Uh, we'll first look at, obviously, what's the more important and pressing issue for the time being, which is the situation on the ground in Afghanistan. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much fear among people there in terms of whether this is going to be a return to 1996 and the first Taliban regime. Uh, Stanley, you've been reporting a lot about how exactly all of this happened so quickly. For our listeners, if you could just break it down in terms of what happened over the last uh, seven days, how did things happen so quickly? And what, in your view, does this mean actually for people in Afghanistan, especially for women, for minorities? Are there signs that things may be different from what you saw from 1996 to 2001? Or do you see signs that are concerning? Yeah, there was a general uh, perception that uh, Taliban would be part of the next Afghan administration in, in, in one way or the other. But I don't think that anybody expected Kabul would fall so quickly. Certainly not the Americans. And I think even the Taliban were surprised to the way uh, Kabul fell. Mullah Barada issued a statement saying that this was a, a sudden uh, victory, uh, asking everybody to be asking the Taliban uh, members to be responsible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, but I think the road to Taliban's victory—that was a long road, which started with uh, the February 2020 agreement between the United States and the Taliban. Because the problem is the the criticism many of us were raising was not that the United States engaged the Taliban or signed an agreement with the Taliban. The problem was that the way the United States exited Afghanistan, because Throughout the negotiations, at no point in the negotiations, the United States managed to extract any concession from the Taliban towards finding a political settlement in Afghanistan. 
So the United States reached an agreement and, uh, and they decided to pull back the troops by May 1st, 2021, in return for assurances from the Taliban that they would not let Afghan soil being used by transnational terrorist organizations like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, etc., etc. So this was Taliban interpreted and propagated this as a victory because, you know, on the one side, this Taliban is there as a, a madrasa-driven students' uh, extremist movement. And on the other side, you have the world's most powerful military and economic force. So the, the Taliban's claim after the agreement was signed was that we defeated the United States in Afghanistan after 20 years. Uh, and then that actually provided a sense of victory to the Taliban, while on the other side, you look at the Afghan soldiers who, or the Afghan government, they felt they were betrayed by the United States because uh, the Americans bypassed the Afghan government and their direct negotiations with, with the Taliban and signed an agreement and committed to them that they were leaving Afghanistan. So I think this was kind of this on the battleground. This certainly altered the balance of power. And this also gave the psychological advantage, which plays a very important factor uh, in, 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 a, in, in the warfare, uh, psychological advantage to the Taliban. And then coming close to the way they, you know, the, 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 the fighting happened. I think uh, one factor is, of course, uh, the Khani government was inherently weak. We know that. Uh, and then there were several factions within the government. And uh, uh, so uh, he was, I mean, he, Khani actually tried to isolate uh, the former Northern Alliance leaders in a bid to shore up the Afghan National Army, which inadvertently led to the weakening of the anti-Taliban forces within Afghanistan. Uh, so the government was uh, weak at the last two elections were disputed. There were lots of issues going on internally. And on the other side, uh, the Taliban, if you look at the Taliban strategy, because uh, uh, the moment the Americans were out, when the United States pulled back the Air Force, their Air, air Force, as well as the con private contractors who were servicing the Afghan Air Force, that had uh, practically, you know, uh, destroyed Afghanistan's superior power, whatever superior power they had in the in the civil war, in the, in the, in the, in the war with the Taliban. That was their air superiority. They lost it with the Americans uh, going. And which also meant that uh, the supply lines were all broken. So the Afghan soldiers who were posted uh, in, in, in remote outposts, they were cut off from the, the, the major cities. So the Taliban could easily overrun this outpost. That's what they did. They captured, uh, you know, the northern districts. And by capturing the northern districts, they were also sending out this very clear message that in the 1990s, it was the north that fought back. Now the north is in our hands. Who are you? Who is going to save you? You know, so the message was very clear from the Taliban that we are anyway coming. So you have two choices. And on the battleground, the, the tactics they deployed, you see them. There were lots of reports, ground reports saying that the Taliban gave two options to the fighting soldiers. You either fight to death or you surrender with your equipment and walk away. And in several places, the troops, they chose the latter because uh, they were unpaid for months. Supply lines were broken. They were not getting supplies. They were not getting reinforcements. And the government, they knew that the government was facing lots of problems and the Americans were leaving. So a demoralized, you know, uh, soldiers, uh, you know, uh, of, of a very weak government on the one side and on the other side, a very resurgent Taliban who were saying that they defeated the Americans. So I think eventually the soldiers, they didn't fight. That's what happened in all the major cities. And once the major cities fell, like uh, we are talking about uh, Faisalabad in 
in, in, in Badakhshan or Takar, uh, you know, even um, in Ghazni. So the Taliban were coming in and Kandahar fell. And once Kandahar, Ghazni and Herat, when these three cities fell, it was evident that the Kabul was under pressure. And uh, Ghani just fled the, fled the country, you know. I mean, the government just fled the uh, country. So once the government is gone, definitely there won't be any battle left. So uh, that that made it easier for the Taliban, I think. So it is a long process, actually, that led to the Taliban's quick single-day victory. And on the second part of your question, uh, yeah, there are, uh, you know, there are lots of speculations or what kind of, we don't know what kind of an administration the Taliban are going to build. Uh, we have to wait and see. And in terms of the Taliban's ideology, uh, you know, the, compared to the 1990s, I think one visible change in Taliban is that the Taliban are now more open to deal with the regional players, the world outside Afghanistan. In the 1990s, that was not the case. They are now ready to deal with the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians. You know, other countries are also, you know, today Turkey said that they are ready to uh, deal with the Taliban. Positive signals are coming. That's what the uh, Turkish foreign ministry is saying. So the Taliban are ready to engage this time. But what kind of a government they are going to implement, what kind of a policies they would implement, we don't know. I think, uh, and the Taliban have uh, not said anything about that they have changed. We, I mean, if the Taliban have changed, if Taliban's ideology has changed, if their outlook has changed, the Taliban have to tell us, no, they have to send some signals. I don't think that they have said anything like that. So uh, it is, uh, we have to wait and see what kind of policy they would adopt towards Afghan women, uh, towards the minorities, um, to what kind of a, a legal system they are going to implement in Afghanistan. Uh, so all those things, I think we have to wait and see. Swasni, what would have been uh, India's expectation in the last few weeks and months? Was it that there would be some kind of compromise where the Taliban would be one of the players? Or were there any expectations at all uh, of the Taliban uh, being the only power in Afghanistan? You did also make the point in your piece that I linked to below this podcast that whether or not India recognizes them as, as the legitimate ruler in Afghanistan, they will have to engage with them. What do we know so far about what Delhi has done in terms of engaging with them? And how prepared is India to deal with this current situation? Well, I think uh, many countries have been caught off guard by, as Stanley was saying, the, the speed with which this takeover of Kabul has happened. And India is one of them, uh, for sure. Until the weekend, there was a sense that the Ghani government would stay in place until some kind of a transitional government or a power sharing arrangement was worked out with the Taliban. That's something the U.S. had said they would do. And remember, until a few weeks ago, India was quite convinced that the U.S. and India were on the same page and that the U.S. negotiations would not leave India high and dry in that sense with a government in, in Kabul uh, that was not friendly to India. So in a sense, uh, this has been, as many diplomats, uh, former diplomats have said today, this has been a setback for India. Yes, you referred to India's uh, attempts at uh, some kind of talks with the Taliban. And for the last year, we understand that officials, security officials, diplomats at different levels have made some furtive initial contacts with the Taliban's political leadership in Doha. We did attend the beginning of the Doha talks officially. Uh, and just last week, there was an official Indian delegation that was invited to Qatar by the Qatari envoy who took part in a meeting along with about five other countries as part of a larger conference of 12 regional countries 
uh, that uh, spoke to both the Taliban and to Afghan representatives. So there was a constant understanding that whenever a new government was formed in Afghanistan, and, and nobody expected it to happen even before the US had completed its pullout, that that would include a component of uh, the outgoing uh, Ghani government. Uh, that's clearly, that's a prediction that has gone awry. Now India has to decide first how it's, uh, you know, as I said, there are these five questions before the government. The first is, of course, safety of Indians. The next is how to deal with the question of the Afghans who want to come to India. And remember, the government's first reaction was to say, we will uh, accept Hindus and Sikhs without naming any of the others. Uh, over time, it uh, over the last day, it seems as if the government has changed its mind. It opened a new portal uh, for Afghan uh, citizens who wanted to apply to India without asking them about their religion. Um, the third question that India has to now grapple with is whether it will recognize a regime of this kind. Because, of course, India has said it won't accept a regime that takes Kabul by force, but the Taliban hasn't needed to take Kabul by force. Uh, so the question of whether India will recognize, as, as we said, depends a lot uh, on what other countries do. Uh, and India will possibly look to the other countries before it goes forward on this. Uh, then there is the question of if it decides to recognize or not recognize, what kind of engagement will it have with, uh, uh, with the uh, uh, Taliban? Because obviously there is uh, the question of whether um, uh, you know, we can do what we did in 1996 when we had no contact at all. And then that uh, served us very badly when it came to the uh, IC814 hijacking because India had absolutely no contact uh, with the uh, Taliban regime at the time. And finally, the question of the strategic space in Afghanistan. And obviously, the fact that the Taliban is so closely linked to Pakistan that they continue to live and have their safe havens in Pakistan is going to play a huge part in deciding what is India's role going to be. This uh, India's influence with the previous government, the Ghani government, the closeness in ties are clearly not something we have with the current regime in Afghanistan. But is there any space for India to engage with this government when it comes to its strategic uh, um, uh, connectivity in the region, uh, when it comes to its port in Chabahar, for example, the investments it made in an air corridor with Afghanistan for trade? Um, I, I think that India is going to have to reconsider a lot of its uh, of, of what the government had hoped would happen. Uh, it may even have to reconsider the kind of engagement it has with the government of Pakistan at present, because, of course, it would seem a little absurd if India was to open some kind of a channel to this regime in Afghanistan, but not then speak to Islamabad. Stanley, one point that you made, obviously, is a big uncertainty is how things have changed from the first Taliban regime and things that haven't changed. One uh, concern that a lot of people will have is their links to several jihadist groups and what all of that might mean for India's own security, especially for Kashmir. In your understanding, what exactly is the current state of play in terms of the Taliban's links to those groups and how should India deal with that? The Taliban's main selling point at this point is that they won't host transnational terrorist organizations. So that's what they, uh, they've been saying that ever since uh, they started talks with Americans. So that was the main selling point, even in the agreement they signed with the United States. So they said that uh, we won't let other terrorist organizations use Afghan soil. Uh, so they are using the same thing um, uh, to build ties or to earn legitimacy from other countries. 
So when they went to China, uh, you know, uh, you know that better that the Taliban repeated the same thing that uh, we won't support any terrorist organizations uh, or we won't support any organization that hurts the interests of other countries. So I think this is kind of an opening. Uh, uh, for India as well, because India definitely, uh, Suhasini brought the story that India uh, started contacts with, established contacts with the Taliban in Doha. Uh, uh, so uh, definitely India would like to engage with the new government in Afghanistan, because of course, as we just discussed, India has its interests uh, to be pursued in Afghanistan. Uh, so I think this is, a, this is, this could be an opening point, because the Taliban's position at this point of time is that my uh, my doubts are, I, I, I don't think or I don't see any evidence to suggest that the Taliban has ideologically changed or we can expect a completely different administration within Afghanistan at this time. But I think in terms of when it comes to its foreign policy, when it comes to with its engagement with the world outside Afghanistan, the Taliban have shown more willingness you know, to engage with this world and and earn some kind of international legitimacy uh, so that they can claim to be the legitimate representatives of Afghanistan. And to earn that legitimacy, what the Taliban are doing this time is that they, I think they understood that in the 1990s, uh, their, their biggest strategic mistake was, it was not the kind of fundamentalism they unleashed on Afghans. Their biggest strategic mistake was to host Al-Qaeda publicly, openly. So, and Taliban, but Taliban have, I think, deep historical ties with these organizations, like whether it is Al-Qaeda, whether it is Lashkar-e Taiba, whether it is Jaysh-e Mohammed. Uh, but I think at this time, having realized the mistakes in the 1990s and also driven by this, you know, quest to get international or regional legitimacy, the Taliban are uh, saying that they would not host these organizations that would hurt the interests of other countries. So this is a point of engagement for India. Uh, and I think at least there won't be, uh, this time, there won't be any overt support for this kind of organizations from the Taliban if they are serious about winning legitimacy of the world. And covertly what they would be doing, I don't know. We have to see that, depending on their grand strategy. And a final question for you, Swasni. You did mention uh, that there are so many things up in play in terms of India's broader uh, strategic choices that it now faces. Uh, one obvious one, Swarasni, will be what happens to in terms of India's relations with Pakistan. India already has an unsettled Western front, and then there's still an unresolved border crisis with China, which a lot of people seem to have forgotten about. What do you think would be Delhi's response to all of this, and specifically if we could focus on India-Pakistan relations in light of the events of the last few days? I think you're quite right, and I think there are three different relationships that will have to be looked at very closely when it comes to the impact of this Taliban takeover of uh, Afghanistan. The first, as you pointed out, is what happens to the India-Pakistan equation, because is Indi if India is in a position where Afghanistan's new regime is uh, recognized by all its other neighbors, that is China, Central Asian countries, Russia, Iran as well, and Pakistan, um, India stands to lose its connectivity and its plans for its entire Western flank. Uh, so I think the first question will be, is India going to now re-engage with Pakistan in order to have a better relationship with Kabul? This is something it has not needed 
in 20 years. Um, uh, but, uh, but today, it does seem as if the regime in Kabul takes a lot of its guidance from uh, the military establishment in Pakistan, as well as the Pakistani government. And it is going to be necessary, possibly, to engage with both of those. Uh, the second relationship is that relationship with the U.S., Given that the U.S. is has has uh, perhaps left this situation in Afghanistan in such a situation um, to India's western flank, what does it mean for the new U.S. project, which is in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, is India going to feel as comfortable committing military resources to this kind of project when its own continental uh, uh, situation and its own continental region is back in turmoil? That's going to be another question. Then, as you pointed out, there is going to be the situation with China. Now, China is a country that has moved in in Afghanistan in ways that were not expected. Uh, China does have a serious concern about terrorism in Afghanistan, reaching its Uyghur, uh, reaching its Xinjiang borders, uh, and Uyghur groups uh, uh, being able to uh, sustain themselves inside Afghanistan in ungoverned spaces there. Um, and China has moved uh, very proactively to engage the Taliban on this, to extract concessions from them or extract commitments from them uh, that none of these terror groups will be able to move. And China has worked on the connectivity sphere. So looking to uh, link the Trans-Afghanistan Railroad with the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, with the larger Belt and Road Initiative projects through Central Asia. Uh, in that situation, again, is India going to concede space to China is it going to be able to, um, uh, to engage China in any way when it comes to Afghanistan? Remember when relations were actually good, when Prime Minister Modi was meeting President Xi Jinping, one of the uh, initiatives the two of them agreed on was for India and China to work together on Afghanistan. And they even had a pilot project where they trained Afghan, uh, um, uh, Afghan diplomats. Clearly, those days are over and the India-China relationship has been changed uh, perhaps permanently when it comes to what has happened at the line of actual control. Uh, but is India going to engage China when it comes to Afghanistan? Because remember, some of those concerns are very similar for both sides. The spillover of terrorism, the spillover of radicalization and uncertainty at the borders of Afghanistan. Right. So, Asni, as you rightly said, there's still no new government in place. It's still early days, and I'm sure we'll keep coming back to this issue. But thank you so much, Swasni Haider and Stanley Johnny, for joining us on the Hindu In Focus podcast today. And do stay tuned. We will come back to the Afghanistan story in the next few episodes in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, Anand. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.